along with the announcements and the other introductory thoughts that were expressed this morning, how appreciative we each certainly can be to think often, to think frequently about the great number of blessings that we have received from God. And certainly on this day, this 12th of April 2009, there are many who have turned their attention somewhat today, perhaps the last day or two, to the nature of things biblical, to the character of things scriptural, in the relation to that holiday that's recognized as Easter. As you might have noted in the bulletin, there are some thoughts that we can certainly consider about the nature of Easter, issues, problems, matters that certainly are worthy of attention and discussion. But for the concourse of the lesson this morning, I thought that we would touch upon a subject that is really related to the topic of Easter, to the glorious resurrection of our Savior, and furthermore, in touches almost every other conceivable topic in the nature of the Word of God. To say that another way is to say it perhaps like this. The understanding of the Bible in a like-minded way. To understand the Bible alike. Consider these introductory thoughts with me if you would. As we even think about the nature of Easter, the worldwide celebrations that have taken place today, the last day or so, they have turned their attention, and those of the vast number of the world, to the resurrection of Jesus. That is supposed to be what Easter is about, a celebration, a remembrance of the resurrection of our Savior. All the while, though, as one contemplates that, that idea and that issue, isn't it interesting that that word does not occur in the Greek text of the Bible anywhere? It is interesting that in English it's found one time in Acts 12, verse number 4. And even there, the translation is not a particularly good one. The word is far better translated Passover than it is Easter. I would thus suggest to you that in many ways it's interesting that the human family may have reached a point where they exalt one day to the exclusion of many others. For when we have the precious privilege of gathering each and every Lord's day, we not only have the opportunity in the concourse of the memorial to recollect the bodily suffering and the shedding of His blood for us, but in the fact that we also remember His death until He come, Act 1 Corinthians 11:26, reminding us that He rose again for our justification, Romans 4, verse 25. To those thoughts might we add a few more things today to direct us into pondering more carefully more interestingly, the issue about the Bible. Isn't it amazing that the Bible is held high and claimed by so very many as the bedrock basis of all that is done and said in that realm of religion, and that as they operate and function based upon it, they seem to do things differently than some other groups do. They seem to worship in ways differently than some other groups worship. I might thus ask us the question, a very practical one indeed, with relation to this book that perhaps is being held in your lap, one that no doubt rests in many places in your house and mine, a book that is held so high in deep regard. I'd like to pose to you a question this morning, and not only a question, but I would hope we shall be able to answer it as well. The question has to do with one that we're going to build up in the course of this slide. The question is not written at the top of it, but we shall encounter it as we approach the bottom. The United States Census recognizes over 635 Christian denominations in this country. Worldwide, that number is in excess of 9,000. 
That is to say, in a different fashion, there are worldwide over 9,000 religious organizations, bodies that call themselves Christian, that have a respect for the nature of the risen Savior, the nature of his suffering death, and the character of the shed blood that he, in fact, allowed to be shed from his body. Furthermore, as they lift high the banner of so-called the cross and the scriptures as the word of God, it is nonetheless a fascinating thing to appreciate that God has communicated ideas to us because that Bible is held up as the final standard, as the final authority. And in all fairness, isn't it wonderful to consider the blessing that that Bible is? But that is to be noted also to this. Of those 9,000 groups that we mentioned earlier, a whole host of them worship in different ways. They practice religion in different ways. They have, in fact, different plans of salvation. They teach different conducts and behaviors to be pleasing unto God. I think that thought is not particularly shocking. We know that. In Putnam County alone, there are dozens of organizations that would fall under that heading. How could it be that these various plans of salvation, for instance, are all exclaimed, can all of them be right? especially when some of them are mutually exclusive. I would submit to you that that's worthy of an approach from yet another angle. So far, at least many would be apt to say that you cannot understand the Bible alike. Note these statements that you might have heard from a neighbor, from a friend, from a co-worker, from some other kind of acquaintance. When a biblical topic arises, some subject that relates to religion... It's not that infrequent to, in fact, either directly or indirectly hear someone say, well, I see the Bible differently than you. That's your interpretation. I have my own, and both of us are right. Or maybe another individual, also understanding of a kind of conversation where some biblical topic has arisen, might well say that I understand it differently than you do, but that's all right. We both understand it differently, but we're both okay. God sees the earnestness and the sincerity in our hearts, and that's enough. Those kind of remarks, again, are not that foreign. I would submit to you that not only that, but those earlier comments about these host of religious organizations, all of that points us to this. Is it possible to understand the Bible alike. Is it possible for all humanity to look upon the divine book that God has revealed and to see it the same way? To retrieve from it and see in it the same modes of worship, the same plan of salvation, the same character of the risen Savior as the Son of God? Can one see it alike? I would submit that near the bottom of that screen... That subject, by the way, touches the message of Easter. It touches the very character of the resurrection of the Savior. For in Romans 4, verses 24 and 25, we find there the inspired apostle making this statement, that for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe in Jesus as the Son of God, for indeed he was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Notice that Paul made reference to believing on him. And furthermore, he affirmed he was delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification. Is it possible thus for all humanity to believe on the same Son of God in the same way and with an appreciation 
for the fact he was delivered for all and raised for our justification. The whole subject of the resurrection then fits into this nicely, as does practically every other Bible subject. We have raised a good question, a question that perhaps can furthermore be presented in this way. May I suggest to you some principles? Principles that will be useful as we contemplate not only a framing of this question more thoroughly, but also the answer to it as presented in the Word of God. First of all, these principles. Isn't it interesting that we are well aware that a person seemingly on frequent occasions can write something and many people can understand it and have no real problem in doing so? Think about the Herald Citizen here in our very county. There are journalists and other writers and reporters who on a daily basis write articles and hundreds if not thousands of people read that article, appreciate what's written, and understand what was said. On another instance, the textbooks that our children, our students use in colleges and high schools and middle schools and elementary schools, some person or group of people wrote a book and that may well be used by thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of students. And they all are given tests. They're given the same test in respect to the fact they've understood the same thing. That's interesting, isn't it? Here are instances where the human family seemingly can write something and everybody is expected to understand it alike. What's so different about this book? Why can't it be understood alike? Let's look at yet another point. It's also fair to say God has communicated to us in written form. Let's in fact make certain we appreciate what that means. God, the almighty, awesome God of heaven, has written unto the human family and placed it in a form that appreciates for us in writing. As you notice the statements in the Word of God that lead us to that conclusion, it gives us a high regard for, for this Bible. I've listed two particular phrases. Think about the phrase, Word of God. That literal phrase, consisting of three words, appears in the Holy Scriptures some 49 times. Four of them are in the Old Testament, 45 of them in the New. And in all those instances, they have reference and context to the Scriptures. This is the Word of God. But yet, look at another phrase that often rings so wonderfully in our ears. What about the phrase, Word of the Lord? That particular phrase, as you can well see, occurs some 258 times in the Bible. 245 of them in the Old Testament, 13 of them in the New. And as that phrase occurs, it has reference to the sacred scriptures, affirming for people living then and now that this is in fact not man's words. It's God's words. And those words are filled with the actual revelation and meaning of the God of heaven. It's what he intended the human family to appreciate and to know. May I submit to you that with that done, notice how men from time to time have reacted to it. In the Bible, we read about individuals who were called scribes, S-C-R-I-B-E. The purpose and work and function of a scribe was to faithfully copy and record the sacred scriptures. 
Obviously then they didn't have Xerox machines, copy machines. What was copied had to be copied by hand. Their job was to faithfully and without mistake copy the Scriptures so that various copies could then be had. I might ask you to notice how high in regard then that Jews and other peoples looked upon this Word. It was God's Word. If it were mere man's words, it wouldn't be that important to copy it. Perhaps one final observation. What about some passages that illustrate in power and in forcefulness the nature of the Bible? No doubt one of the greatest certainly would be 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. As Paul wrote to that church in Thessalonica, he to them said, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually also worketh in you that believe. What is it that had been preached in Thessalonica? And what is it that had been received by those brethren? It was not the word of men, Paul said. It was the word of God. No wonder then as Paul made the basis of this word, and it's that same basis that remains today, we can certainly then see God has communicated with the human family. And now the question, can we understand it alike? Is it something to be expected? Does God demand that we understand it alike? I would submit to you that that is such a great question because all of eternity hangs in the balance. Can we understand the Bible alike? Absolutely. If it's possible for a person to write an article in the newspaper and expect men to understand it alike, what about the infinite God of heaven? If he wanted to, could he not have written a book and everyone could understand it alike? Well, it would be foolishness to suggest the contrary, wouldn't it? Certainly, if he wished to, he could have penned a book that could be understand, understood alike. May I submit that leads us to some understandings that I think will have great meaning for us even today. Look at the principles that help us appreciate what it is we're going to learn. These principles about understanding the Bible alike. Not only should we understand it alike, we must if we are to be pleasing to God. We have no option in that matter. Consider these principles that lead us to that conclusion. First of all, where is spiritual life and the guidelines that relate to it found? Might we begin in Psalm 119, verse 93. The ancient psalmist David, as he penned that wonderful chapter, highlighting and extolling the blessing of the Word of God, made this statement in verse 93 of that chapter. I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. David found the life-giving word to be found in the Holy Scriptures. Thou hast quickened me with them. Jesus in Matthew 4, verse number 4, on the occasion when the tempter was tempting him, he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Where then do you and I find the means by which we live? Jesus said, It was by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Perhaps one final issue in text. In John 6 verse 63, The Lord yet again said, The words that I have spoken unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Let's pause to ask a question. If it's the case then that the word of God is what quickens and what is the, that by which one must live? 
is it then reasonable to think that everyone can read it differently, understand it dis dis disjointly, and yet still find life within it? That's nonsense. Life is found in the words of that sacred text. Spiritual life is found in the life-giving words enunciated within the sacred writings of the Bible. That alone makes it seem impossible to think that each can understand it differently. But yet in another way, in 2 Timothy 2 verse 15, might we give some attention to one of the injunctions that was made to Timothy. There Paul said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If it was the case that each person could read it differently, make of it what he wants, what sense would there be in the command to rightly divide it? There'd be no point in rightly dividing it because what you think is as good as what I think and we're both okay. Paul didn't subscribe to that viewpoint, did he? He said, Timothy, it's extremely significant that you rightly divide the word of truth. That means to handle it aright. That means as one takes approach to the truth, to read carefully, earnestly, simply, honestly, and forthrightly with proper conclusions the things that God has revealed. Furthermore, notice yet another text that leads us to consider somewhat the same. That high compliment paid to the church in Berea. In Acts 17, verse number 11, on the second missionary journey, as Paul with his companions ultimately came to that city in Berea, they were paid a great compliment by Luke, the writer of that book. He said, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Another question. What was so important and so highly complimentary about them to search the Scriptures daily if it was not necessary to interpret everything alike? Why couldn't one person in that church read things one way and another read them differently and both be satisfactory to God? That wouldn't require a diligent searching of the Scriptures, would it? But we see that something different was said there. They read and searched with great examination on a daily basis the Scriptures, and that was something they ought to have done. And that's what Paul complimented them for. It is no less different than that today. We must search the Scriptures daily whether those things are so. It's only with a careful reading of the Scriptures that one will reach the proper conclusions and see the Scriptures alike. I would submit therein perhaps is the problem. These 9,000 different denominations or more, as they have come to exist and come to be, are filled with individuals and those who in fact first instituted them who did not have a thorough appreciation for this principle that we've just now studied a diligent and careful examination of the Scriptures so that we can make certain to see what God has revealed. What our opinions are do not matter in the biblical sense. That won't get anyone into heaven. It'll not forgive anyone's sins. It will not, in fact, make that church a proper and blessed one. But notice yet another principle, if you would, please. One of the last requests that Jesus made before His death one of the last statements that was uttered from his lips before they drove the nails in his hands and in his feet. This statement was made on the nine, in fact, just prior to those set of events, less than 12 hours earlier. 
Our Lord uttered a prayer in Gethsemane. And in that prayer, one of the statements he made was this. Neither pray I for these alone, but for all them which shall believe on me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. May I ask that you notice some of the words that the Lord used. And they really are in the Greek. They are not mere things introduced by a translator. He said that they all may be one. And that oneness is described in the same way as the oneness between Jesus and his Father. How close in unison were they? They were absolutely both members of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son... They were one in purpose, in work, in mission, in activity. Jesus prayed that those who would be his followers would be united, one, just as he and the Father were one. Today, it must certainly be a tragic and sad thing to the Jesus who had prayed that prayer to look upon the statement and the nature of the denominational world today. To see individuals who claim to worship Him, who claim to rest upon Him, who claim to believe in His Word, and yet they're divided. They have very little in common in many cases. They have little, if any, fellowship one with another. They teach different plans of salvation. Might I again notice the Lord prayed, they may be one. In Ephesians 4, verse 5, we read there that there is one faith and one baptism. If there is but one faith, what does that then say about the multiplicity of supposed faiths that is often said to exist? All of these passages, I think, lead us to yet see that that early church in Acts 4 verse 32 was described in this way. They were of one heart and of one soul. Does that sound like an organization that saw things differently? that believe various points of doctrine differently. The sacred writer again said they were of one soul and of one heart. We at Pippin, of course, desire to be the same, but all who believe on the Savior today should also feel the same. In fairness, one can notice also the commandment that Paul made to the church in Rome. In Romans 16, verse number 17, to that congregation, Paul said clearly that they were to pay great attention to those that walked differently according to the doctrine that had been delivered. In fact, note the language especially that Paul uses. He said, Now, brethren, mark them which walk not in accordance to the doctrine that you have been delivered, and avoid them. Might we notice that command would make no sense if it were possible to read passages and interpret things differently. But yet Paul said, Mark them which walk, not in accordance to the doctrine you, that you, you have been delivered. We should thus be very cautious and careful about the doctrine revealed and strive to walk totally in harmony and in unison with it. I would remind each of us about the rebuke that the Lord made to the Sadducees in Matthew 22. Notice, they were individuals who had an appreciation, to some extent, for the Old Testament. But yet the Lord made this statement to them. Ye do greatly err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. What was the point the Lord was making? If they had been diligent students of the Scriptures, they would have known that the very thing they were teaching was not true. 
Hence, that led Jesus to say, you do not know the Scriptures, though they claimed that they did. Isn't it true then that the knowledge of the Word of God is vital, important, and greatly significant, and it is not the case one can thus look upon it differently and think that that's all right. It must be seen alike if it is seen correctly. Perhaps finally, there's two more for us to consider. First, in John chapter 20, verse number 30 and 31, the last two verses of that 20th chapter of John, there we might ask, what was the purpose behind the writing of John, of his gospel epistle? That particular book, John said, was written for this reason. Truly many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. It's significant, isn't it, that John there said, though everything that Jesus did is not written, these things are written, and this is the purpose that you in reading them may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that you may have life in his name. Notice we must then be able to see things alike. For John said what has been written has been written for that purpose, that all could come to a common faith. For we now know that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. I would submit that perhaps the text we should use to close is the text that Brother Joy read earlier in the times of our service today. 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 10. I would ask that we each place a strong note of emphasis upon the unity enjoined in this text and in this passage. There Paul wrote, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind, and in the same judgment. If it was true that that fourfold sense of unity existed in that verse, speak the same thing, have the same mind, have the same judgment, then what did that, does that suggest about the people in Corinth? It was thus stated that they were to view the sacred text alike and to read with the same mind, the same heart, the same judgment what God had revealed. And to not do that was, in fact, to not be pleasing unto God. It is no different today. Jesus prayed that they that believe on Him would be one. John, 20, John 17, verse 20. And to us today, that we would be joined together in the same mind, the same heart, speak the same thing, and be of the same judgment. I would submit to you that it is possible to understand the Bible alike. And not only is it possible, God demands it. That leads us to these conclusion statements. Can we understand the Bible? Absolutely. For indeed, contained in the sacred scriptures are these words, This is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16 We can understand the Bible. Next question, can we understand the Bible alike? As we have seen today in overwhelming proof, yes. We can understand it, and we can understand it alike. And I would submit that the greatest appreciation from us to God in regard to that thought is to humbly obey the sentiments and statements contained within that text, whether it be in relation to the resurrection of Jesus, whether it be in relation to the plan of salvation, 
but to understand the Scriptures and the revelation thereof and to simply obey that which God has revealed. We can't understand the Bible alike. May we encourage others to do that as we instruct, as we teach, as we live lives of faithful conduct before them. This is an opportune time for us, though, to extend God's invitation. There might be one or more in the audience today who is in need of a public response to the gospel call of invitation. It's entirely appropriate to consider 2 Thessalonians 2.14, in which we are called by the gospel. Today, as the gospel issues a call to you, consider with me this. Jesus thus said, in order to be pleasing unto him and to be a child of God, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe exactly that he is what he said he was. He said, I that speak unto thee am the Messiah. John 4, verses 27 and 28. Today, have you then allowed that belief to produce in you repentance? The fact that the activities in your life have been a transgression and violation of God's will and that you need to repent of those things, meaning a change of mind that results in a change of action. Upon that repentance, confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God and believe that confession with all your heart, Acts 8, 37. And then, be immersed, baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. If we could be of assistance in your accomplishment of those things today, would you not let it be known? We would be happy to assist and to help. If you have become a Christian at some former time, but you have since, long since begun to live in a way that's not faithful, come back to your first love. You know that Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. He pleads for entrance, but you must open the door. You must, in fact, make a statement before others about the sins that are known publicly and so that they can pray, understanding that you are making a change. And we each can pray on your behalf. That's what happened in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. This very day, if we could be of assistance to you in either of those ways, wouldn't you let that be known? Please, with haste, while together we stand and while we sing.